sorry, sorry. Go ahead. All right. Well, Galatians chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and flip that direction. Jeremy just sent me a text and said that they're feeling great, but they're expecting jet lag to hit them tomorrow, and then all of a sudden, just hit the wall. So we'll uh, keep them in your prayers as this week goes on, and as they're, they're working. This is not just a, a vacation, but they are, they are laboring, so I want to pray for them on this. So Galatians chapter 5, we've been going through the book of Galatians for 10-ish weeks now. I've been very thankful for the guys at Redeemer to come and help uh, fill the gap as we search for a lead pastor. Um, that process is still ongoing. Uh, we've got one resume, uh, and we're waiting on another questionnaire to be submitted here, hopefully this week, um, So, and had some really encouraging conversations on that front. So, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 25, I want to read the passage, uh, then I'll pray and we'll jump into it. Is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Father, this morning we thank you for your word and for your Spirit. And today, God, I ask that you would use both of those things to shape us more into the image of your Son. God, set us free from the flesh nature that tries to grip at our hearts and help us to walk in the freedom that you have given us. God, you're good. Glorify yourself in and among us today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, most of you know my day job is a farmer. And when I read a passage about fruit, I got excited about talking about fruit because my favorite thing that we grow is watermelons, right? I love watermelons. I love growing watermelons. There's the excitement of planting, you know, dropping those seeds in the ground. Then there's this incredible anxiety over the next seven, 10 days going, man, did I plant them too deep or not deep enough? Can I keep it wet or is it going to dry out? And then all of a sudden you start walking fields and you start seeing these little plants pop through the ground and like, it's just this, thank you, Lord. All right. We, we stand a chance. It's, it's long season ahead, but we stand a chance. And then you get to spend the next 90 days walking fields and, and looking at plants and trying to decide what do they need? What kind of fertilizer do they need? Or do they not need any? Do they need water now? Or do they not need any water? And, and then the unfun part is, is weeds. We, we fight weeds and we hoe weeds and we pull weeds. And, and finally, after about 90 days, you know what we get to do? We get to go eat watermelons. All right, it's awesome. It's wonderful. Nothing is like walking out there, walking through this watermelon patch and finding that one piece of fruit going, this is it, today's the day, cutting that thing open and having that first crunchy, sweet, juicy, ripe watermelon. Now you guys all want watermelons, don't you? Watermelon season is short. It's like 90 days. It goes real fast, but it's really long. 
because it takes forever and it's really stressful. And if you look in the scriptures over and over, God often uses farming or gardening to compare the Christian life. It's the moment of a seed being planted, it growing, it being cultivated so that it can then bear fruit and it's hard work and it's stressful. Well, today in Galatians 5, I think what we're going to see, and I hope what we see, is, is we see two ways to live the Christian life. We, we see that we can walk by the flesh and allow the weeds to grow, or we can cultivate the garden that God has put in us. We can do the hard work of following him, and when we do that, we can see that our main point, when we walk by the power of the Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. When we walk by the power of the Spirit, we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit. So, so I've got three observations from this text. First off, it's, it's not easy because there's a war within. There's something going on inside of our hearts that's very difficult. And then we'll see that if we do the work that God has called us to, we kill the works of the flesh that will begin to bear the fruit of the Spirit. So with that being said, first, first observation, the war within. All right, Galatians 5, 16, Paul says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, if you look at this verse, Paul does a couple things. One is he gives a command. He says, walk by the spirit. Now this is a present active indicative. That means do it, always be doing it, and it's a command, you must do it. But he also gives a promise on the backside of it. If you do this, what happens? Well, you kill the desires of the flesh. In other words, in other words, if you walk by the Spirit, you won't sin. You'll stop sinning. This is the only command that Paul actually gives in this, this passage. But the problem with this command is verse 17. What does he say in verse 17? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. What God has called us to, a life of holiness... And what he's saved us for, himself, is constantly under attack of our fleshly nature. There is the flesh and the spirit, and they're both at battle against each other. A couple weeks ago, we wrapped up VBS. And what was our VBS about? It's about putting on the armor of the Lord, right? We spent, on, we spent a week with a bunch of kiddos teaching them that they needed to be putting on the armor of God because the Christian walk is constantly a battle. The call to pick up our cross daily and to follow Christ is not something that comes naturally. What comes naturally is our flesh. It's doing the things that our flesh wants. And when we do the things to, that our flesh wants, it leads us to death. But that's what makes this command that Paul is giving us unique. He's not saying you must do this in order to be free. You must do this in order for God to be pleased with you. This command that Paul is giving comes off of the basis of verse 13. Look back with me to Galatians 5.13. For you were called to what? Freedom. We've gone over and over in the book of Galatians how God is pleased with us because of the blood of Jesus, not because of what we do. Our works don't save us. Instead, what Paul is now saying, walk in the freedom in which you were called to live. And how do you walk in freedom? Well, you do it by walking in the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So walk in that freedom. Walk in the life that he is giving you, but know that walking in that life isn't going to be easy. Why? Because your flesh and your spirit are still fighting each other. There's these two opposing forces. 
Now, when I read verse 17, I tend to get a little bit depressed. I tend to look at it and be like, man, how do I stand a chance of doing this? How is my flesh going to overcome, be overcome? It seems to grip at me. One commentator said, the believer is not the helpless battleground of two opposing forces. If he yields to the flesh, he's enslaved by it. But if he obeys and submits to the promptings of the spirit, he is liberated and can make a positive and willing response to the command, walk by the spirit. And he can do this, the other moral imperatives that the New Testament gives us, as, if, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, doing the will of God from the heart. So, so when you submit to the spirit, God changes your heart so that it's your heart's desire to obey to what he's called you to be and to do. Now, obviously, Paul here, he gives us two ways to live, right? There's either walking by the flesh or there's walking by the spirit. There's no middle ground. You, you are either in one of these camps. You are either living according to your flesh or you're living according to your spirit. I heard it said before, you're living according to your personal trinity of my wants, my needs, my desires, or you're living according to the holy trinity. So the first question we have to ask when we walk up to this passage is, is how are you walking? Are you walking according to the flesh or to the spirit? Because there's, there's no middle ground. There's no complacency. There's no apathy. In fact, if complacency describes your walk with the Lord, then you're right where Satan wants you. He's just going to slowly pull you back over to your flesh, doing the things of the world that ultimately, ultimately lead you where? To death. Complacency doesn't exist in our spiritual walk. And there's no Christian in this room that is so spiritually strong or mature that they don't need to heed this passage and listen to these warnings. But there's also not any that is so weak that they cannot be free from the tyranny of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. So what does this mean for us? What does walk by the spirit and these, these two, this flesh and the spirit battle, what does this mean for us? Well, I think there's a couple things for us on this first point. The first is, is are you walking and being led by the spirit? Maybe you're asking, what does that mean? What does it mean to be led by the spirit? And we, we certainly could spend a whole sermon talking about what does it mean to be led by the spirit? Well, there's more to this passage, so we're not gonna spend the whole time talking about that. But just for a short summary, I would say, to walk by the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit. It means, to, it means to follow our teacher around. Follow the one who has spoken to us and given us everything we need for life and godliness. It means to know his word. And it means that as we study his word, we submit to the Spirit's promptings and instruction within it. So that's, that's how you follow the Spirit. Now, this is not some sort of like superhero Christian. Like this isn't something just missionaries do. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to walk according to his ways. It's not super Christians, it's just God's people. So this is for all of us. Are you being led by the Spirit? The second thing that I think these couple verses do to us is it, it affects our view of each other, right? So you've probably heard me share this story with you before, but a while back when my wife were getting marriage counseling before we got married, the guy that was doing our counseling came up to us and he said, okay, y'all's task for this week is I want you to go to each one of your parents individually and ask them for, for advice and see what they say. And I'm sorry, but I only remember, mom, I'm sorry, I don't remember what you said. I only remember one person's instruction for marriage advice and it was my dad's. And dad said that we should lower our expectations of one another. 
And as a young guy about to get married who thought the world of this girl, my dad just like popped the balloon. It was like, what? That's depressing. He didn't say it, but what I heard was she's not as awesome as you think she is. Now, that's, that's not what dad thinks. I'm putting words in his mouth. It's a good thing my wife isn't here today. Now, if you know Jordan, you know she's awesome. She's awesome. She's great. I married way out of my league, but as awesome as my wife is, she's like me in that she has a flesh nature. And day after day after day, that fleshly nature rears its ugly head. And if I have some sort of lofty expectation that my wife is supposed to meet, and I hold that over her, do you know what that does to her? It crushes her. It, it, it actually, it, it puts her in a place that she shouldn't be in. But if I recognize that my wife, just like me, has indwelling sin that wants to keep coming back and grabbing a hold of me, do you know how my disposition towards her changes? All of a sudden, I become her helpmate. I meet her where she's at. I want to love her and serve her and engage with her so that she can overcome those things. Church, that is exactly what the church is for. When I recognize that you, just like me, struggle with sin, I don't expect you to walk in here holy. I expect you to walk in here broken and go, man, I screwed up this week, but thanks be to God for Jesus. And thanks be to God for you because you're gonna help me. You're going to meet me where I'm at, and you're going to love me, and you're going to serve me. So church, are you living in authentic community with one another? We talked this morning about what the outside world sees in Sunday school, what the outside world sees when we abide in the vine. When the outside world looks at our church, does he, do they see a community of believers, of broken people, who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb, yet love and serve each, each other in a way that reflects what Jesus did, in a supernatural way that can only be attributed to the power of the spirit. Is that what the outside world sees when they view us? Maybe another way to ask the question is, is do you even know what the people across the room are struggling with? Do you love one another and serve one another and live life together with one another to know exactly what's going on in our hearts? Because here's the deal. The flesh nature still exists. It's not gone. Every one of us is fighting it. And not every one of us is winning. Some are doing better than the others, but there's a day when we trip and fall. Who's winning your heart right now? Is it the flesh or is it the spirit? Well, this leads us to our, our second point, and that's the works of the flesh. So we know that there's this battle going on between the flesh and the spirit, but we have to ask, what are the works of the flesh? Well, Paul was such a nice guy, and he gave us a list. He said, man, I'll, I'll give you an idea of what some of, these, one of the, some of these works are. Now, he says in Galatians 5, 19 through 22, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, several commentaries have taken this list of vices, we'll call them that, list of vices, and they've tried to uh, categorize them under certain categories. And and we're going to kind of do that. But before we do that, I think it's really important to see what Paul, how Paul concludes his list. He says what? And things like these. So what he mean, what, what he's doing there is he's saying this list is not exhaustive. This isn't all the works of the flesh. This is just representative. What Paul probably did was knowing the church in Galatia, having been there and knowing them, he probably looked at him and said, man, I see this either going on in you or going on in your culture. You're gonna be tempted to do these things. Now we know Song of Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. So this list, I think, is very real in our world and in our culture today. We don't have to go far to find these things. So I'm going to take the next few minutes, and I'm just going to walk through these. I'm going to hit a few shortly, and a few we'll spend a little more time on. But I want to walk through these and examine them for a minute. The first group of sins has to do with sensual passions, right? So there's sexual immorality. Now, if you go read the New Testament, you go read uh, some of the lists that Jesus gives or some of the other lists that Paul gives, and you know what the first thing they always list is? Sexual immorality. It's always the first one. But why? Why is that the first thing they do? Well, they're not prioritizing this because it's more heinous than all other sins. They're not saying, man, this is the worst sin, so don't do it. That's not it. Rather, what they're saying is that Sexual sins display more graphically the self-centeredness and rebellion against God's norm that mark all of the others as well. Sexual sins are done against the body. 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 18 through 20, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. Originally, it meant to prostitute. So to participate in sexual immorality means to prostitute your body. And if your body, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, how do you think the Holy Spirit feels about your sexual immorality? It grieves him. Like this sin, this sin, like all other sins, deeply grieves the Holy Spirit. The next is the word impurity. Now, a little Greek nerdy here. The word for impurity is the word akatharsia. I hope I'm saying that right. Akatharsia. And it has to do with the idea of uncleanliness, especially thinking about ceremonial uncleanliness. Remember, the Israelites would have to be clean before they could go into the temple to worship. And this idea here of uncleanliness, it speaks to the defilement uh, of sexual sin and the separation from God that it brings. So, so how, do we, how do we deal with sexual immorality or impurity? What do we do with that? Well, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins and repent of our sins, God promises us that he is faithful to justify and forgive us of our sins and to purify. Now remember, impurity is akatharsia. Purify is catharsia. Catharsia. So, so Paul's playing a little word, word game here. To be acatharsia is to be unclean and to be purified, which happens how? By repentance and the blood of Jesus. That's how you're clean. And when that happens, what happens? You're cleansed from all unrighteousness. 
You walk purely before him. So we have sexual, impu- sexual immorality, we have purity, and the last group of, of this group is sensuality. And here, what Paul is speaking about, he's talking about the total loss of limits, the lack of restraint, of decency, and of self-respect. Now, Paul's not looking into the church, and again, he's, he's not looking at him going, I see this in you. Rather, what Paul's doing, he's looking at the church, and he's going, I see this, I see this can happen to you, or is happening in the broader culture. Church, how far do we have to go to find these same problems? All right, pick up, pick up your iPhone and open up Apple News. And within about five seconds, you can probably find a story of someone who has fallen because of sexual immorality or impurity. Shoot, you can be even tempted by it. Open up any social media platform and within seconds, there is flooding of temptation, flooding of options. You turn on the TV And you see how our culture has all of the sudden decided not only do we, are we going to say it's okay, but we're going to celebrate the sexual immorality that the scriptures are clear about. The whole month of June has been called what? Gay Pride Month. You haven't been able to get away from it. So the question for us on these particular things, because it is so rampant and real and alive, not just out there, but in here. The question for us is where do we stand on these things? And, and I don't mean where do you stand on this from like a political perspective, I need to legislate morality. Like that's not what we're going after. What I mean is what is your heart's disposition to these things? When sexual temptation arises, do you like Paul says, flee? Or do you dabble? Do you entertain it? Because engaging in that in any form or fashion, giving it even a foothold, is what? It's allowing the flesh to live and to dominate. It is not walking by the Spirit. So, the war is real. It's it's happening in our own hearts. It's happening in our culture. And the only reason it's happening in our culture is because we've lost the battle in our heart. The next set of sins Paul describes has to do with religion. Now, if you remember Rome, how many... Pagan idols did they have? Countless, thousands upon thousands of them, right? So, so Paul is looking into the church at Galatia here, and he's, he's not, again, saying you guys are worshiping idols. What he's, he's seeing is he's seeing that you guys are either going to be tempted to go back to your idol worship that you were saved from, or you're going to be tempted to pull that idol worship back into Christianity, now, for us, that type of idol worship seems like something that, like, that's way, like, we don't do that. Like, I don't think there's this uh, God of wine that we get drunk and celebrate, right? Like, that doesn't exist in our day anymore. But John Calvin said, he said, every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. So what are our idols? What are the things that are idols in our own hearts? Well, Spurgeon said, if you love anything better than God, you're idolaters. If there's anything you would not give up for God, it is your idol. If there's anything that you seek with greater fervor than you seek the glory of God, that is your idol. And conversion means turning from every idol. So we have to ask the question, church, what do you love more than God? What are you not willing to give up? Last week, I got to, got to baptize Robert. And before I baptized Robert, I asked him two questions. First one was, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, I do. And the second one is, is, are you willing to go anywhere he calls you to go and are you willing to do anything he calls you to do? 
Yes, I do. I baptize. Church, to have Jesus as Lord of our life means that we're willing to go wherever he calls us to go and do whatever he calls us to do. If the Spirit of God pressed on your heart this morning to go be a missionary in Afghanistan, is your answer already yes? If not, you have an idol. If the Spirit of God asks you to go and make disciples of your neighbor, are you willing to do that? If not, you have an idol. Idols grip our hearts. They're just as real as they were then, they are now. The next one is sorcery, witchcraft, right? This one's a big one for us today, right? We got a bunch of Harry Potter people in here, I don't know. Now the Greek word for this is pharmakeia. What does that sound like? Pharmacy. That's where we get the word pharmacy from. So in, in the early church, back in that day, what would happen is, is there would be people who dealt drugs. And their drugs would be for one of two reasons. It would be so that people could get high, they could lose control of their senses, or it would be for death. To poison people, to kill people. Often it was used to describe people who gave drugs to cause abortions. Those people were called sorcerers or witchcraft. Church, drugs are as real in our community as they were then. So what Paul's railing against here is, is people who are using recreational drugs. That is part of the work of the flesh. If you participate in things that cause you to con lose control of your mind or your senses, you are not walking by the Spirit. The next group of sins falls under interpersonal relationships, things between you and me. He begins with enmity or hatred, and Paul uses that word uh, in Romans 8, 7 to describe it. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's that word, enmity. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And then the rest of these vices here that Paul uses seem to be kind of an unpacking of what enmity is. So just real quickly running through these, strife or discord has to do with a sense of competitiveness that leads to arguing amongst one another. And jealousy and envy later on, it means to want something that you can't have. I thought one's commentator of definition of jealousy was good. He said, it's a basic posture of ingratitude to God. It's a failure to accept one's life as a gift from God. And it's to be jealous what someone else has, uh, to be jealous for what someone else has is to fling one's own gifts before God in unthankful rebellion and spite. What are you jealous for? What do you wish you had that someone else has? What about fits of rage? I don't know why, but every time I read that word, it reminds me of Mr. Wilson from Dennis the Menace. Anybody remember that, that movie? Mr. Wilson! Remember Dennis riding his little bike down the street, and you can hear his Coke cans, and then Mr. Wilson hears him, and he's like, oh no, here comes Dennis. This is going to be the worst summer ever, right? He throws a fit. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to. He would just go off the handle because he heard this kid who was an ornery little stinker, coming up the street. So here in Galatians, what Paul is, is talking about, he's talking about a passionate outburst of anger or hostile feeling. I have a little note on my desk that was written by one of my granddads. It says, there's only two ways to get rid of our anger. There's only two ways. One is to die, and the other is to let our lives be controlled by the Spirit of God. I know plenty of people, some in this room, who have a short fuse, like me, we tend to get angry quickly. But such fits of rage are a form of conduct unbecoming to a Christian. 
They drag us away from God and the promptings of his spirit and further enmesh us in the works of the flesh. Does your temper reflect a spirit-led life? Rivalries or selfish ambition next, depending on, depending on which translation you have. This is a term that's derived from the political culture of Greece. And what Paul's talking about here is, is those who would run for office would be self-seeking or self-serving. He's not talking about being against political office. That's not what he's talking about. But what he is talking about being a type of people who seek things to promote themselves. If that's you... You're the opposite of what Jesus was. Matthew 20, 28. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now related to this one, I've had quite a few conversations with people in this room about ambition. Is ambition a good thing or a bad thing? I've gone round and round, several of you. Well, we could do a whole sermon on that or a Sunday school series on that. However, for a short answer, I think what we can see in this is that if you have a, an ambition that leads to serving others, that's for the good of other people, that's a God-honoring ambition. But if you have an ambition that is about promoting your name and your bank account, that's a wicked ambition. So where do your ambitions lie? Whose good are you ultimately seeking? Then there's dissensions and divisions. They're closely related. Uh, dissensions has to do with false teaching. Divisions happen, happen when people follow that false teaching. And then there's the interpersonal sins. The last thing is, is drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness is exactly what you think it is. Paul spoke it against it here in the book of Ephesians. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. The Christian walk is one that is filled with the Holy Spirit, not with the spirits. The abuse of alcohol was certainly rampant in Paul's day. There was Dionysus, who was the wine god, talked about that a second ago. And the abuse of alcohol is as real to us as it, is, as it was then, right? I opened up the news. I love college sports. A couple weeks ago, I saw that the head basketball coach for West Virginia got pulled over and arrested for having a DUI. And he was subsequently, again, this wasn't his first, he was subsequently dismissed from the university. He's a Hall of Fame coach whose reputation and future are now tarnished. I can think of other basketball coaches. I can think of football coaches. I can think of stories, my own family. My granddad was the product of uh, alcohol and physical abuse. I can think of people who died from alcohol poisoning, people who were killed by drunk drivers or were killed as a drunk driver. I'm sure I'm not the only one. Does alcohol abuse describe you? Do you look to it to relieve your stress and calm your nerves? Is it the only way in which you can just enjoy life. And then finally, there's this word orgies, and it's translated in various ways depending on which version you have, but ultimately, this is used in other lists, and it's always linked to the sin of drunkenness. And at the heart of it, what Paul is doing here, what he's showing is it has to do with infidelity and moral chaos. So, so this list, Paul started up here with sexual immorality, and he's just worked his way down to where does it all end? It ends in the pit of human despair, of chaos, I think it's worth making a couple broad observations about this list of works of the flesh. First, Paul says in verse 21 that those who do such things. Now, this verb indicates a habitual action. It's not people who accidentally slip and fall from time to time, but it's people who are committed to, whose life is pursuing these sins, whose lives are dominated by them. So, we have to ask the question of this, 
Are you committed to these sins? Are you walking in these things? And the other thing that we see when we look at this is, is ultimately, who are these sins about? Right? If, if you're walking in sexual morality, if you're walking in fits of rage, if you're walking in drunkenness, who is that ultimately about? It's about you. It's all about you. You are serving the, the me trinity. You are a self-seeking, self-serving, self-gratifying person. It runs over others for the purpose of me. It serves my wants, my needs, and my desires. And what is the warning that Paul has for people who walk in those ways? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. So in other words, if you're living under the rule of the flesh, then you should stand in fear. Because what awaits you is eternal damnation. Those who come to faith in Christ by grace alone are new people. And while they still wrestle with sin, they still wrestle with the flesh, it doesn't dominate them. The spirit changes their desires and, their, and it gives them a new power to live. But what about those Christians? What about those people who actually are tied up? They're addicted to some of these things. They're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to recreational drug use. They're addicted to alcohol abuse. What, what about those people? Well, I think there's two things. I think they should, they should heed Paul's warning. They should stand with a little bit of fear in them, but they shouldn't despair because of the gospel. The very fact that they are concerned about their spiritual condition shows that the spirit is at work and that he will enable them to live a life that is more and more pleasing to God. See, at the end of the day, our good works don't save us. Just because we don't do those things doesn't mean God accepts us for who we are. The only way God accepts us is by the blood of the lamb. It's by believing in Jesus and repenting of our sins. But our bad works do condemn us. They do send us to hell. So before we move on to our next point, let me pause and ask you, are you walking according to the desires of the flesh? Is your heart's desire to satisfy your flesh's desire? If this is you, I've got some good news. You don't have to be enslaved anymore. The spirit of God gives life. He makes all things new. By repenting and believing in him, by crucifying our flesh with Jesus, he saves us. He breathes life into us and he brings us from death to life. And not only does he save us from that flesh, you know what he saves us into? He saves us into a community of people who are walking the same battle, who are fighting the same things and struggling with the same stuff. So you're not alone. If you're in Christ, you have the spirit of God in you and the people of God with you to help you walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. So then, if that's the works of the flesh, what are the fruit of the spirit? Well, we could go through every fruit of the spirit and we could do a sermon on each one, but we're not gonna do that because we've already been in this one for a while. So I want to examine each one of those pretty quickly. I'm gonna try and be a little shorter on those. Uh, but before we do, I wanna make a couple observations. Notice that it's the works of what? The flesh. And it's the fruit of what? The spirit. What's Paul doing with that? What's the difference between these two things? Who does the works of the flesh? You and I do. It's the things that we do, the things that we participate. And it's those things that we do that bring about our own demise. But what are the fruit of? The fruit of the spirit. Are they things that you come up with no, you, you don't just muster up more love or muster up more joy or peace or patience or kindness. You know, it's, not, it's not what this is. The fruit of the Spirit is from the Spirit. 
It comes from submitting to and following the Spirit. It's the natural result of a life controlled and guided by the Spirit. So we have works of the flesh and fruit of the Spirit, but then we also have the works, plural, and fruit, singular. Notice that, that that's a difference there. Most commentators tend to mix metaphors. They, they take a diamond, and then when you take a diamond and you look at it closely, you know, you can look through little, what those things called, magnifying glass, and you can look at different aspects of it. You can see different facets of it. But when you step back and you, you hold it right here, what do you see? You see the diamond. Now you zoom in, you can see different things, but then you hold it back and you see a diamond. It's the same way with the fruit of the Spirit. You can look at each one of these things individually, and that's good to do, and you should do. But when you step back, do you know what you see? You see Jesus. You see the one who saved us and redeemed us. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Because in its entirety, who is, it, who is the fruit of the Spirit personified? It's Jesus. That's what it is. It's becoming like him. So, looking at these, it's no surprise that Paul starts off with love. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Sorry. Love is the essence of who God is. Love binds all things together. In one commentary, he has a really good summary. Love is to be the atmosphere in which believers are to conduct their lives. It's the garment they are to put on, the consistent motive of all their actions. Love is the secret of unity. It begins with love for fellow Christians, including church leaders, and extends to all people. Love is the way to Christian maturity. It's the ground of Christian appeal, and it's the proper restraint on the exercise of Christian liberty. Love is accompanied by practical action. It leads, for example, to generous giving, to genuine forgiveness. Christian love is not flabby or sentimental, but it is keenly perceptive. It is capable of true discrimination, and it does not refrain from correction and warning when such is demanded by the situation. Such love cannot be self-generated. It's the product of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, Christians are exhorted, they're encouraged to pursue love. And how do they do that? According to Galatians 5, as they walk by the Spirit. And there's joy. Joy isn't earthly human happiness. Joy can only be found in the Lord. And because it's found in the Lord, it doesn't matter what trials and tribulations affect us. In fact, the spirit of joy proves itself in the middle of those things. We read John 15 this week. Jesus came, why? So that his joy may be in us and our joy may be complete. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in the fruit of the spirit, we see perfect love and complete joy. Jesus. Then there's peace. Reminds us of the Hebrew term shalom, which means more than just not trouble. What it means is wholeness completion, prosperity. God is called the God of peace. First Thessalonians, Jesus is known as the Lord of peace. The gospel that we preach is what? The gospel of peace. We have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. And since we have peace with God, you know what? We can have peace with one another. Those that know Christ and have his spirit have the peace that what? Passes all understanding. Patience or long-suffering is one of the first character qualities of God that we see in the scriptures. If you remember back to Exodus, which we just read with the kiddos this morning, remember God said that he is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. The Hebrew word for that is actually a word picture. It means to be long-nosed, right? You think of somebody who gets angry, their nostrils flare, right? They get, they get red-faced. That's the opposite of what God is. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. Romans 
2.4, uh, uh, long-suffering patience is often tied with uh, kindness. Paul says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, there it is, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So in this verse, we see that God's kindness and his patience toward us is for what purpose? It's so that we leave a, live a life of holiness, live a life of repentance, as Christians, we're called to put on these things. Colossians 3, we read this to start this morning. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, bearing with one another, patience. Then there's goodness. What is goodness? I was talking with a guy this week. Oh, he's a good guy. I'd come pull you out of the ditch. That's not what goodness is. Goodness is the opposite of what envy and jealousy were. Envy and jealousy says, I see what you want and I want it. Goodness says, I see what you have. I celebrate that you have it, and I'm going to give you more. That's goodness. That's what Jesus does. Then there's faithfulness. Faithfulness throughout the New Testament is means to be true and trustworthy. It means to be reliable in one's dealings with others. It's often used to describe pastors. Paul says in 2 Timothy, instructs young Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Then there's gentleness. Gentleness has to do with a submissive, teachable spirit toward God that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration towards others. Paul tells the church in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, 2, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So here we see that Paul is telling the church in Galatians, uh, and we'll see this next week in chapter six, verse, uh, I think verse six, no, verse two, um, if anyone is caught in sin, to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Self-control, it means to master your desires. You've heard us talk about Jocko Willink, the Navy SEAL guy, is one of Jeremy's favorite statements. Discipline equals freedom, right? Be disciplined. Paul recalls this imagery in 1 Corinthians 9. He talks about runners who run a race. They run discipline, right? If you're working out, you're exercising, you live a self-disciplined life. Why do they do that? so that they are not disqualified. It's the same reason for us. We live a self-disciplined life, one under self-control. Why? So that we can walk in the freedom that God has given us. It takes discipline to follow Jesus, but the Spirit of God grants that to us. Now, we've flown through that list. We can unpack those much further. We just barely dabbled in them. But what do we do with it? What do we do with this list of, of the fruit of the Spirit? Well, one thing that we can be in danger of is looking at that list and making it a law. Of saying, if I don't do these things, God won't love me. But that's a complete misunderstanding of Paul's point. Fruit cannot be legislated. Can you imagine if I walked out to one of my watermelon fields and I said, you will bear fruit? I'd look pretty stupid, wouldn't I? Like that's just a little bit beyond ridiculous and absurd. However, if I cultivate and I fertilize and I work water and I work really dang hard at getting rid of weeds, what happens in 90 days? We eat. We bear fruit. Church, it's the same way with following the Spirit. When we follow His promptings and we do the things He calls us to do, we bear fruit. So what do we do? Well, verse 24, 
How do we live? The first thing you do, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The first thing you do is you work to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Now what's interesting is on one level, this has already happened, right? When we say, God save me, we crucify our flesh to the cross with Christ. I had a couple of commentators that talked about that and they said basically what the Christian life is a little bit like is like standing at the foot of the cross and we're looking up there and we see our fleshly desires heaving and dying, but it's continually trying to crawl back down and pursue those things. And our temptation is to want to help it. And when we do that, we step into the works of the flesh. But what Paul is calling us to do is to say, no, you get back up on that cross. That guy died. I'm walking with the other guy, the one who walked out of the grave. I'm living by the spirit. So the Christian life is one of crucifying that old flesh, of making sure it stays dead, and by the power of the spirit, pursuing the life in the spirit. So if we live by the spirit, then let us follow his leading. Right, so uh, verse 25, if we live by the spirit, it's the spirit that brings us life. Let us also keep in step. Now that phrase, keep in step, is a military term. And it means to have a whole bunch of group of soldiers marching to the beat of the drum of their general. And I love that phrase here. I love that word picture. Why? Because it means you're not walking alone. We're not walking alone. We, God has given you me. And he's given me you. Why? So that we can follow the spirit to look like the sun. So that we can bear fruit. Look, I plant watermelons with the hope that God in his mercy and kindness will allow me to reap a harvest at the end of the year. But it's not guaranteed. One hailstorm, we're toast. Here's the thing. Church, when we walk according to the Spirit's leading, the Spirit who gave us life, the Spirit who keeps us, when we follow him, do you know what you're promised? You're promised fruit. Your promise a harvest. Your promise to look more like Jesus and to stop sinning. Do you want that? So, in conclusion, how do we end this? We have to ask, how are you walking? Are you walking according to your fleshly nature or are you walking according to the power and the leading of the Spirit? There's no middle ground. You are either walking according to your flesh or according to your spirit. How do you know? How do you know if you're doing one of those two things? Well, I think the easiest thing to do is to take that list that Paul just gave us and say, when I look at who I was last year or five years ago, or when my wife looks at me who I was last year or five years ago, does she see me increasing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Or does she see me being the same person? Am I the same guy I was back then? I had a friend of ours in North Carolina that used to say, a kid, by the time he's 15, he is who he is. Unless some tragic thing happens, he'll never change. Thanks be to God that by the power of the Spirit, when you walk according to the Spirit, you begin to look like Jesus. So, so are you looking more like Jesus? When you reflect on who you were, when you remember the past year, three years, five years, have you grown? 
Church, if the spirit of God has breathed his life into you, follow his lead. If the spirit of God has not breathed his life into you, if you are still walking according to the flesh, don't wait. Today, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. And now, because of him, you can become like him and live with him. Church, when we walk by the power of the Spirit, we will bear the fruit of the Spirit. Father, thank you. Thank you that this life that is a battle is not one that we have to live alone. God, you have given us your Spirit. You reside in us to make us look more like Jesus, to shape us into the image of your Son. You've done that for our good and for your glory. God, help us to walk that way. Forgive us. Lord, forgive us because I I know that I and every other person in this room this week has walked according to the flesh at some point. We have failed to live according to your ways. But God, thank you for being full of mercy and grace. Thank you for being long-nosed, long-suffering, and not bearing your wrath out on us, but rather bearing it on your son, Jesus. Help us now to walk in this newness of life, this freedom that you've given us, this goodness that reflects your character and shape us into the image of your son. Do that so that the outside world looking in sees the beauty of the glory of God and do it for our good. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.